0: identity dog whistle area. Of course, it's cheap. You can keep talking like that, but you have basically said we have nothing useful to say about the core problems facing the country.
1: Welcome to Political Fix, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times with me, Lucy Fisher. You heard there the FT's chief economics commentator, Martin Wolf, on the state of UK politics. Also coming up, Martin gives his view on Britain's economic prospects but first I'm joined in the studio by my FT colleague George Parker. Hello George. Hi Lucy. And also on the pod today is the FT Stephen Bush. Hello Stephen. Hi Lucy. It's been a rather sluggish end to the parliamentary year, hasn't it? Um, We've had the sheer brass neck of Michelle Moan, the Tory peer who's admitted to lying repeatedly to the press. Uh, That's kept some of us bystanders agog. George, we were among reporters who descended on Downing Street for drinks with the Chancellor and Prime Minister uh, this week. And Rishi Sunak, true to form, avoided making headlines in a a one-and-a-half-hour grilling at the Liaison Committee. So we're facing the prospect of a welcome break from politics over the festive season. But before we charge headlong into what's likely to be a very busy election year, let's just stand back and take stock at the past year and what it can tell us about the year ahead. So George, what's your assessment of where Sunak ends this year?
2: Well, I think you're right that everyone has ended up in a sort of slightly exhausted state at the end of the year. And um, that big vote on Rwanda, I think, was the sort of the After that, everyone just wanted to go put their head under a duvet and spend a a few days in a befuddled uh, partying state. But look, I mean, the the headline of it is Rishi Sunat's more or less where he was at the start of the year, which is he's about 20 points behind Labour in the opinion polls. The five tests he set himself, only one of them's been uh, achieved, which is the one about halving inflation. And even that one, I don't think anyone would say that was particularly down to anything Rishi Sunat did. So he's in a difficult position. Labour have spent the year basically doing very little, um, not giving the Tories a target's way, Matt. Um, and I suspect that's going to carry on into the new year. So, look, I mean, one of the things that Rishi Sunak did say at the Downing Street Drinks Party, we were both out, apart from discussing his penchant for heart radio Christmas, heart Christmas, was that 2024 would be an election year. So he seemed to be ruling out the idea of dragging it out to January 2025.
1: Small mercies.
2: Small mercies, but next year is the election year. And I think... Yeah, that has its own momentum. I think going into the new year, everything will be framed by the fact that the poll is coming. And I think that will be a sharpening moment for everyone.
1: And and Stephen, I mean, George had a great scoop um, earlier this week uh, on the five pledges uh, that uh, the statistics authority had given Sunak a rap over the knuckles for incorrectly claiming that he had met another of the five tests uh, and claimed wrongly that debt was falling. What can we expect from from Sunak at the beginning of January? Do you think will he risk making another pledge card for himself in in the new year scene setter we're all expecting?
3: No, there is a live debate in Downing Street about what the approach should be, given the plan A of we've been, we've met we've kept these promises. Now here are some more. Obviously, it's not you know you can't go into an election going one out of five ain't bad. Um, we've already seen the kind of beginnings of what we'll hear a lot more of, which is. You know, highlighting and although, yes, the Labour Party has tried to be very cautious, uh, they haven't always succeeded. You know, they spent their plan to abolish non-domicile tax seven times, according to CCHQ's latest uh, attack briefing on them. And we'll hear a lot more about that. And I think what we'll see over the year is because he can hardly run on his achievements, because even even when he tries to mark his own homework, he's still only saying two out of five have been been met. What we will see instead will be a, you know, fear of Labour, you know, a on Keir Starmer's record uh, as head of the Crown Prosecution Service. And that will, I think, be the backdrop of of most of the first four months of the year.
1: Yeah, I want to come on to, to the campaign and just, just how nasty it might get in a minute. George, before we look to that, where do you think Tory MPs are? Because in my experience, when you've got a restive party, like the Conservatives certainly are, uh, and they get to the end of a long-term, they're tired. Sometimes recess can work in one of two ways. It can either allow them a chance to go home, get some sleep, get some rest, simmer down, gain some perspective, and they come back ready to pull together and move forward. Or they go home, they hear the angry feedback from constituents, and that gets them even more riled up about the party's electoral prospects.
2: Yeah, I think there'll be a number of emotions going through the minds of Conservative MPs. Look, some of them plainly think that they've lost the next election. You speak to quite a few people who are now thinking beyond the next election and their jobs post-politics. There are some people in marginal seats, I think, who are going to come back and just think we've got to get in behind the prime minister. It's our, our only chance. And then there's a third group who basically are already thinking about the leadership contest to come after, so that loses the election and how that's going to play out. And that's obviously a very dangerous dynamic for the prime minister to have people openly... Um, thinking about life after an election defeat, he needs to get back on the front foot straight away. We expect a speech from him earlier in the new year, setting out his priorities. And Stephen says, with laden with attacks on on Labour, he'll hope to get that Rwanda bill through very quickly and try to get the party in behind him.
1: And what about this Wellingborough by election we're expecting mm. to come? I think it could be as early as uh, early February, could be a bit later if the government tries to delay moving the writ. But that's a moment of danger for Sunak.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just piece of bone seed. There's a, been a recall petition. 13% of his, uh, his constituents want, want him out. Uh, so there will be a by election. I would have thought the best thing for Conservative Central Office to do would be to hold the by-election early in 2024. You don't want it hanging over them. We're also expecting potentially another by-election in South Blackpool, which is Scott Benton's seat, who is also expected to face a recall petition. They'll want to get those out of the way as early as possible rather than have them dragging in uh, to the election period, which I should it's worth stressing, I still think, and people in Downing Street, the view on this seems to be hardening, Uh, will be in the autumn of 2024 rather than this earlier speculation about doing something in May.
1: Stephen, I mean, looking to Labour, looking back at this year and thinking how much we've learned about their policy programme for government, it's pretty thin, isn't it? I mean, there's still a big uphill challenge for Starmer to put some meat on the bone on on policy, isn't there? Or can he get away um, with trying to push ahead uh, towards the election without telling the public terribly much about what he'd do in government?
3: I actually think that the the Labour... Plan is quite thick, right? They've got a fairly large suite of changes to the labour market proposed. They have, you know, a very bold commitment on planning reform. When you talk to the minority of conservatives who aren't in despair, or the ones who are in despair for the party nationally, but are optimistic about their own seat, they talk about Labour's planning reform. So they have, you know, I think in terms of their their broad thesis of you know we'll try and get more growth, and when we have more growth, then we'll be able to invest more in public services, and will make public services run better through our reform programme. That for an opposition is actually a fairly chunky set of of commitments. There is quite a lot to uh, to attack there if you're the um if you're the Conservative Party. I think the question for them over both this year and the year coming is can they avoid the place in the Conservatives want to fight the next election, which is to go Come on, we all know that the Labour Party, when push comes to shove, is going to find 20 billion, it's going to find 20 billion. By raising your taxes.
1: And Stephen, in January, we're expecting Labour to make the formal request for access talks. Uh, Those are the the talks with the civil service, setting out their priorities, confidential private discussions uh, about how Labour would want to forge ahead in the first 100 days uh, of a Starmer-led government. Um, Are they ready to put in that request? Are they clear in their own minds about what their policy priorities are? Well,
3: I, th- I think, yeah, the interesting, I actually asked this question to a static cabinet member only yesterday, and they kind of sort of swallowed and said, well, hardly any of us have been in government before. They said, so I kind of don't think any of us can honestly say that we're ready. Um, and I think that's the, that is the is the big known unknown for them, right, is that with the exception of Keir Starmer, who's obviously run a big public service, uh, this is actually an even greener front bench than the one in 1997. And I think you know, one subplot of that first 100 days, if, if they, they do get into office, will be someone, including possibly some shadow cabinet ministers who are currently very favoured at Westminster, you know, among the lobby, by commentators, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, may turn out to And, and to name, name
1: be... some names. Who are you thinking about there?
3: Well, I'm not, I'm not saying that I've looked at any of them until I think you're going to struggle. But I mean, if you imagine, say, someone who's, I think, a very good opposition spokesperson, like, say, West Streeting, right, who's impressed lots of the stakeholders by talking to them very seriously about, um, you know, NHS reform. Is he going to be able to manage having this huge spending department with, you know, a variety of crises in his intray? Maybe. And the other dynamic, if they do win, of course, will be that there will be many, many more new MPs than there are people in the Parliamentary Party now because they are, you know, thanks to Jeremy Corbyn, there are very few Labour MPs. So that will be another kind of odd dynamic, right? You'll have, Mm. in some cases, very experienced people who will be, in on the backbenches or in the uh, junior ministerial ranks will probably be looking up at some of the secretary of states and and positioning themselves for those jobs.
1: And George, before we get to Labour being in government uh, and uh, and winning the next election, mm. what do you identify as the major challenges facing Starmer in the first part of next year?
2: I think the challenge will be to minimise the target that the Conservatives have to aim at. And there's been a lot of talk in Labour circles about, you know, next year is the year when we'll be a bit more specific about what we're going to do. And we reported the other day that they're doing a big review of financial services legislation which um, and regulation, which our readers and listeners will be interested in. But my impression is still that they are determined to make the target as small as possible. So I think one of the things we'll see in the first part of uh, next year will be some kind of redefinition of this £28 billion commitment on the green prosperity plan every single conservative press release even rishi sunak's speech at the boozy downing street drinks refers to the 28 billion this is it's not just a notional thing about this 28 billion pounds of borrowing what they will try and do is weaponize this as a labor tax bombshell yeah you know, how are they going to pay for it they're going to put your taxes up and i think labor's first priority in 2024 will be to find a way of neutralizing that attack and that's difficult because if you take the i slightly disagree with Stephen about the fact that Labour's got this wasty programme for government. I think if you ask members of the public what Labour would do, I think they struggle. And probably the most identifiable thing is they're going to spend a load of money on the green economy. Now, if you start to dilute that or push it back into the long grass or tie it up in the fiscal rules, people will start to ask, what is your economic policy about? But my instinct is that Labour are going to be safety first and they will try and close down that target quite early on next year.
1: And Stephen, just finally coming back to this point about what a nasty election campaign we could see coming up, the way the Conservatives are going to go after Starmer. We've already started to see a a trickle of uh, stories in the Telegraph about Starmer's record as DPP and the kinds of bad guys he helped uh, defend uh, uh, when he was a defence barrister before that. Um, Do you think those kind of attacks are going to have much purchase with the public? And what about Labour's attack against uh, Rishi Sunak that it's gearing up uh, regarding his wealth uh, and his wife's former status as a non-dom. Obviously, Keir
3: Starmer has a very long career. So I'm reluctant to categorically say it won't work because it is certainly possible and there is something in it that it, that hits all of the following asks. Politically salient, relevant to the Conservative's strengths in office and something that is clearly separate from the Conservative record. And it is possible that they can hit on an attack on Keir Starmer's record. That does uh, achieve all of those things. However, I would say it is unlikely, uh, simply because he was head of the DPP during a conservative government under the prime minister, who's now back as foreign secretary, and the conservative record on criminal justice is not good, to put it mildly. On the Rishi Rishishak attacks, well, we've already seen Uh, that those attacks do spook the Conservative Party. They're one of the reasons why we had a national insurance cut rather than an inheritance tax cut in the most recent fiscal event. Labour will, of course, continue to return to that theme. I mean, you know, the economic case for what they want to do on the non-doms reform is is pretty thin. That is a political attack disguised as a revenue raiser. It's a way of re-airing that Rishi Sunak had a green card until very long and it speaks to, you know anxieties about his wealth and i to be honest do think also does slightly harm the prime minister specifically because he is from an ethnic minority um and so i think yeah we'll see a lot more of that kind of he's rich and that and that in some seats will i think slide into a he's not around here kind of message i'm not saying there are lots of votes uh that are moved by that but there is a crucial five percent of the country which is moved by that. I and mean, in some seats, five percent of the vote is going to be very, very important. Just,
1: just, just unpack that very briefly, um, Stephen. So you, you think it plays into uh, a narrative that he's what a kind of a, a global sort of financier, or, or you think it is more a sort of a Have racist a, attack on on him?
3: I don't think it is a racist attack. Right, in that it is perfectly reasonable um, and actually indeed fair comment to point out that. As finance minister, he retained his green card. I think that is a legitimate um, cause of political attack, and it is a legitimate cause of disquiet uh, among voters. But it also does particularly land well against Rishi Sunak because of his ethnic background, right? We can see that in the polling, right? He trails the Conservative Party on patriotism. He trails the Conservative Party on law and order. It is hard. To see the uh, policy or philosophical argument as to why Rishi Sunak would trail his party on those issues. So, although these are all um, legitimate attacks that are always part and parcel of any election, they will land differently because you know Rishi Sunak is from an ethnic minority in his British India. Just as you know, to take the last election as an example, uh, I think attacks on um, Jeremy Corbyn's weakness in the face of national threats landed differently in 2019, in part because Jeremy Corbyn looked older and more frail. You know, I do really notice when I go around the country, the the green card does still come up. Mm. And it comes up specifically because, you know, it does feed into a particular vulnerability than than this prime minister uh, carries. And I think that, you know, in terms of this nasty election, that will be one of the kind of, whether it's a box spot where someone says something slightly unsavory or just, yeah, as we see in these polls, right? where he mm. does trail the conservative party on issues where I would say it is not obvious why he would trail them on those issues.
1: Well, let's pivot now from politics to economics and who else to appraise the UK's outlook but the doyen of economic commentary, the FT's Martin Wolf. Martin, thanks for joining us today.
0: Great pleasure.
1: So we've just been talking about Rishi Sunak's five pledges he made in January. Can you just give us a a quick appraisal of the three economic pledges uh, within that uh, charge sheet and how he's got on?
0: Well, the first, if I remember correctly, was that inflation would fall. And it has got nothing to do with the government, but fair enough. you take credit for what was likely to happen. Uh, The second is that debt would fall. Um, So far, not really. Uh, But they promise it will in the next parliamentary term, after they're almost certainly not going to be in power, on the basis of promises on public spending, which are completely implausible. So I would have to say that's sort of a fiction. And remind me what the third was? Growth. Oh, yes. Well, it's sort of limping, really limping, um, but not ridiculously negative anyway.
1: So let's sort of um, focus on, on on the growth issue, and, and let's get a sense from you of just how dire or not the outlook is uh, for the UK economy, particularly when it comes to comparison nations like other large European countries.
0: Well, I think the best way, actually, of looking at British performance, in the first place, is relative to its own history, um, and I also think the best way is in terms of of the long term. Britain has been a growing economy for an exceptionally long period it started in in the 19th century uh, and as far as we can see the last 15 years in terms of productivity output per head, I have really been the worst as far back as we can go. So essentially near stagnant in terms of real incomes per head and in terms of productivity. Not absolutely stagnant. The Italians have done even worse. So and that is and they've done it for longer, mm. so since uh for at least um 30 years, a bit more. Uh, but the um we've joined that club and we've experienced also a dramatic decline in the rate of productivity growth from what appeared probably partly illusory to be an exceptionally good performance by comparison up to the financial crisis to 2007. So this long-term stagnation is the really worrying thing, because once you get stuck in a low-growth trap like that, investment is weak, Mm -hmm. basically the weakest in any major country, and then you're caught in this vicious circle. Um, People don't expect growth, so they don't invest for growth. And Mm -hmm. if they don't invest for growth, we don't grow and so forth. Um, Now, in the short run, I would expect next year it's going to be pretty poor. How poor? I think there's a lot of uh, controversy. And short-term forecasts, I think, are always pretty doubtful. But what I'm pretty confident about is that we're not going to break out of the low-growth trap. Mm. And that's the thing that I think is really worrying.
1: And who's to blame for this trap we find ourselves in? Is it the past thirteen years of conservative led administrations? does it go back earlier than that? It sounds from from your columns that I uh, read avidly that uh, at root this is really about low public and private investment how we've got into this trap in the first place.
0: I think the honest answer is we don't fully know um the i in Two recent columns, I've been writing about a fascinating book produced by the Resolution Foundation in association with the Center for Economic Performance at the London School of Economics. It documents the the weak productivity growth. In comparison, it documents the low investment rate. So we know, as it were, what's gone wrong. I think, to be honest, it's not clear why it's gone wrong. Um, And I think there are, are, broadly speaking, two sorts of explanations. One is that actually the British economy has been very weak for a very long time, including the period before 2007. And it was flattered in the preceding 15 years or so by the fact that the world had a huge financial bubble. The UK, having one of the two largest financial centres, profited immensely from that bubble, which was unsustainable. And the bubble, the financial bubble, seeped over into other areas of our economy, for instance, like the property boom, um, which allowed what was really no more than the fruit of the financial bubble to be recorded as income. In other words, we were never as strong as we thought we were. And in that, this is a retrospective look, not a view I had at the time, that means that the post-Thatcher boom, which essentially was what began after we left the ARM in the early 90s, we didn't really have a boom while Thatcher was in power, but the post-Thatcher boom period from, let's say, uh, 92 to 2007 was a bit of an illusion, and we just returned to reality. Uh, And that's really depressing because it means that we we are fundamentally a very weak economy and i think that's quite plausible the second view is that something did happen then and i think this is also part of the story which is after the crisis we pursued for essentially political not economic reasons an austerity policy that not the stuffing out of public investment mm-hmm gave us a really big, uh, long period of weakness, very big economic weakness, which discouraged animal spirits in the private sector. And that then created a sort of vicious circle, the beginning of the vicious circle. And then we did Brexit, which was another huge blow to confidence. So if you take this as the central view, then the important lesson is we've just got to stop doing stupid things. We've got to raise <laughs> public investment. We've got to r- reach the best possible deal we can on Brexit. We've got to provide ins- real incentives for private investment, and that the Chancellor did with the proposal, which I've supported for years, decades, uh, for full expensing of investment, reform of pensions, and a few other things, and maybe growth will restart. i to add one final thing. Britain has a uniquely unfavorable regional uh, balance of economic activity. It's it's really terrible. And that becomes more important when London itself isn't doing very well. And London itself hasn't been doing that well because, well, by historical standards, because the financial sector isn't doing what it used to do. Um, So we have basically two possible explanations, and I think both are true. One, we always had a bit of a growth illusion about Mm -hmm. how strong we were up to 2007. And then we made some pretty bad mistakes and series of mistakes afterwards, which kept on knocking the stuffing out of growth.
1: Well, uh, it's pretty uh, alarming, uh, the picture you paint of the economic outlook, but uh, also slightly heartened. You think it's not implausible. There may be um, some uh, growth uh, further along the line. It does feel at the moment, with the economy as weak as you set out, that public services are potentially in danger. I wonder, do you think long term that the NHS will survive?
0: Well, I don't see what the alternative is going to be. It depends really what you mean by the NHS. Um, we should think about what is unique about the NHS and what is similar to everywhere else. So every continental country at all like ours has universal health insurance, right The providers are often mostly private or semi-private they may be not-for-profit organizations but they're independent and the government provides pays for universal health insurance in some measure there may be some top-ups but basically there's universal health insurance what makes the nhs special is that the industry is nationalized i could imagine though and i've written about this deciding that actually that centralized way of managing the provision of health would change. But I can't imagine any way of getting rid of universal health insurance um, because, well, the United States, I mean, that's a system without universal health insurance. It costs almost twice as much as ours does, uh, giving basic health care to a very large part of population is incredibly difficult. So I think we could decide to change our payment through tax to the payment through universal health insurance, but compulsory universal health insurance, in my view, is a tax. You can call it something else, but it is. And you could change the NHS structure to make the hospitals and whatever the care institutions are, more independent but then the GPs already are. So the truth is that I don't think there's a meaningful sense in which the NHS is going to disappear. Um, what it can do is just get worse and worse. And if that happens, what will happen over time is people who can afford it will increasingly go for a private. Insurance route, and the rest of society will end up uh, with what is still a publicly provided health service, but just a very, very poor one. And the fundamental issue here is not, in my view, whether it's publicly or privately provided. What its fundamental issue is are we prepared to pay for what a universal health service actually costs in current circumstances, which is more than we are currently paying for it?
1: Well, that is a debate that will rage on. Another uh, element uh, of the uh, of the political uh, debate about the uh, economy that is uh, going to gear up ahead of the the election is around taxes. And Martin, I wanted to ask you, where do you stand on the debate about whether high taxes stifle economic growth?
0: I'm somewhat sceptical. The UK is not a high tax country. It's very very important. It's higher than it used to be. Mm-hmm. That's not surprising, given the change in our demography, it was bound to happen. I've been writing about this for 20 years. It was bound to happen because we're going to have more old people. Health will become more expensive. We need more education in the modern world than we used to. We couldn't have children leave school at 15 as we used to. I mean, this is all obvious. So we are going to spend more on public services like this. We're clearly going to end up paying more on defense. So it seems to me obvious that our tax burden will go up. Um, and that's particularly true if growth is very slow because the services still get more expensive to a lesser degree, but still do so. Now, if you compare us with uh, continental countries, which are, you can throw in Australia and Canada, we're not particularly high tax uh, and we're not particularly prosperous. So, uh, and indeed, I've done this analysis, there, there really isn't any correlation between the tax burden countries pay and their standard of living, which and their growth rates, for that matter. Um, France and Britain are roughly equally prosperous. Their growth rates have been roughly equally poor in the last 15 years. And the French tax burden is about 15 percentage points of GDP higher than ours. So I think the argument that if we cut taxes, growth will just explode, which is sort of the list trust argument, is just wrong. People will point to the US, which has a somewhat lower tax burden than ours, there's no doubt about it. But I think if you're trying to analyze why does America grow so well, uh, well, it's grown relatively well, this is a complicated story, there are so many other things America has going for it that just focusing on the tax burden is, I think, pretty misleading.
1: Mm. And just as a follow-up, I mean, it sounds from what you're saying like there might be a bit of maneuver room for Labour, if they get into government uh, next year, to increase taxes, to boost public services? Although I doubt they'd like to say that before the election.
0: I think they have a terribly big problem, which is starting from where they are now. Okay? They would like to improve public services, which means higher taxes. So that cuts into consumption, p- household consumption, mm-hmm. inevitably. because they also want to raise investment in the economy, both private and public. They don't have direct levers, but let's assume those rise. So you've got increased spending on public services and increased investment. And the only thing that can pay for that ultimately is either we borrow even more from abroad. We have an even bigger current account deficit, and we already have a very big one, or we squeeze consumption. And and in a stagnant economy, the problem is squeezing consumption means people's standard of living fall. So it's a fundamental political nightmare, which is why the conservative government, in my view, isn't even pretending to tackle these problems. They clearly aren't. And they're focusing instead on all sorts of identity, what the Americans would call dog whistle issues, which are cheap, divisive, and you might win on the basis of those when you have absolutely nothing useful to say, and they don't, nothing about what they're going to do to fix these fundamental core problems. And
1: just for listeners, you're talking about issues like migration, cultural issues like the trans...
0: Migration, sending people off to Rwanda... Uh, I mean, never in my lifetime, and I've been around a long time, have I watched the government suffer so much over an issue which will change so little. It is completely totemic, obviously. Uh, Some of the visa changes they've just introduced uh, are, again, I mean, these are very annoying for a lot of people, but basically totemic. They have nothing to do with grappling any of the really big problems, which are, if we want to raise investment and we want to uh, raise the spending on core public services like education and health, Uh, and we've got debt interest rising as well, and we don't want to borrow more from abroad, consumption will have to be squeezed. And consumption will be squeezed not just of the rich. It will be squeezed in the middle, at the very least. And no politician wants to say that. Labour doesn't want to say that. So we get into all these nonsense issues. Now, can Labour change this? maybe they will be spectacularly lucky, arrive in office, and suddenly the economy starts growing at two or three percent, and that would change everything. If that doesn't happen, this is the dilemma they face. Uh, They're going to have to squeeze consumption in various different ways, raise savings, raise taxes. These are not quite the same thing. In order to get a high investment, higher growth, uh, high quality public services sort of country. That's what they want to deliver. And they can't get from here to there without making quite a lot of people worse off in the context of a cost of living squeeze. And I don't know how politicians can solve that problem. So they too will probably be tempted to go off and talk about something else. I suspect they won't find it as easy as the conservatives have done, but I don't know. But once you've got politics moving into this sort of identity dog whistle area. Of course, it's cheap. You can keep talking like that. But you have basically said we have nothing useful to say about the core problems facing the country.
1: It's an uphill uh, challenge faced by uh, whichever party forms the next government. At the moment, it very much looks like it is Labour. One thing Keir Starmer has suggested is he wants to retool the relationship uh, with the EU. You wrote a Great column uh, in recent weeks, Martin, about why you think the UK won't rejoin the EU anytime soon. I'm not going to ask you to repeat um, your arguments here um, because I'm going to put the links to that article in the show notes. Anyone um, listening should go away and read it. But if uh, Starmer does get in, what should be his priority in terms of what he should try to negotiate with the EU? And what is it plausible that Brussels would agree to? Well,
0: I think he needs to open trade and movement of people, including workers, for both sides, skilled workers, as far as he can. Right? There are some relatively low-hanging fruit, which I think they're already referring to, for instance, food standards. I mean, some of the problems at the border will be ameliorated if we decide that our food standards should essentially be the same as the continents. Uh, The same applies to industrial standards. British manufacturers are not desperately looking to produce to different standards in Britain from what they would produce for the continental market. It just adds cost. So I think convergence of standards should as far as possible be achieved. In fact, generally, it seems to me the only cases where we will want to diverge is where it is overwhelmingly clear that the continental standards, the EU standards are inappropriate for us and costly. And that's not the case in many of these areas. Uh, Again, with financial services, this is a central sector. We should, as far as possible, push to get into the, the market. I know a lot of this will be very, very difficult, but that I think should be the aim as i said we should diverge only when it's clearly and obviously in our interest and there aren't that many areas where in my view it is even if we think their standards aren't really perfect now we won't go into the customs union which would of course eliminate some of the, tr- the trade barriers we have because we are in a free trade area which means we have rules of origin which are complicated uh and we're certainly not going to the single market it seems to me in in the near term. Um, but maybe in the longer term, we could be thinking of being more like Norway, uh, which is in the single market. They're not in the customs union. And, um, now that means we lose more of our precious autonomy, but I think we've now had a pretty good invest experience with how much the that precious autonomy has given us and i don't think anybody can really argue it has given us very much in fact i think it's impossible to say that they've given us anything but negative things overall um so go as far as they can and do it in technical detailed ways as actually sunak's one real achievement the windsor agreement did It's not very controversial because most people, I mean, I would say 95% of the British public don't care, don't know uh, rightly, and uh, the the precise details in which Northern Irish trade works with the rest of the UK is a matter of no importance. They should do similar things in all the other areas and do it quietly and ignore the, the hysteria from the Tory press.
1: Well, that is a, that's certainly a guide to what to do for Keir Starmer. Of course, his red lines at the moment are not joining the single market or customs of union. Of course,
0: but he can course. do lots before he gets there.
1: Martin, just finally, can I tempt you to gaze into your crystal ball uh, and tell our listeners just one thing they should be looking out for in 2024 regarding the UK or the world economy?
0: Uh, there's so much. Well, I'll tell you two things. First of all, surprises are as we know, can always happen. There are things that might happen. I have no idea. I think the most interesting thing that is obvious now is how far is inflation going to disappear and how far are interest rates going to fall. I think there is a good chance, not far from certain, that inflation will, in fact, fall a long way and interest rates will start falling quite sharply towards the end of next year. And with luck, luck, that will make government finances look better and it will make The people, public, feel much better. Uh, Refinancing mortgages will look much nicer. And that might cheer people up. Maybe Labour will be
1: lucky. Well, that is a very optimistic note to end on. Uh, Martin Wolf, thank you so much for that canter through so many topics. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Well, that was The World According to Martin Wolf uh, and a masterclass in some of the issues that are likely to dominate the election campaign next year. So we'll certainly be returning to those in-depth on Political Fix. There's just time left for our stock picks, but it's no ordinary segment this week. Oh, no. Mm. It's time for the end of year appraisal of portfolios. Uh, You should all be Mm. embracing George, Stephen. (laughs) And we have uh, a little prize giving to do this week because it is the Political Fix Stock Pick Awards, if you will. So, George, can you guess which politician was the most bought since July when we introduced it?
2: Mmm, let me guess. West Streeting.
1: Okay, Stephen, who do you think?
2: Uh, James Cleverly.
1: Okay, Stephen is correct. It is a tie, though, between James Cleverly, Sadiq Khan, Claire Coutinho and Shabana Mahmood. Mm. What about most sold, Stephen?
3: Oh, it's going to be a conservative with a spending department. I think I'm going to go for Gillian Keegan. Okay. I'm worried it's going to be Steve Barclay.
2: Okay, who do you think? George? Well... I mean, it's possible that we went for for James Cleverly because having bought him, we then dumped him quite <laughs> vigorously when he became home Secretary. But I'm going to go for his predecessor at the Home Office, Suella Braverman.
1: George, you are correct. Yeah. And now that brings me on nicely to the prize for best stock tipper. Mm. George, you have exploited uh, all your best intelligence to be very much uh, the the best tipper uh, this year. You bought Claire Coutinho just days before she became Energy Secretary and Laura Trott before she landed a plum treasury job in the latest reshuffle. So I'm transferring to you. You can hear me (laughs) rustling. Some lovely heap of chocolate money. That is your. Lucy,
2: you're prize. Stuff, stuffing my mouth with gold, <laughs> which is uh, always very welcome at this time of year. Look at that. Amazing. Thank you very much indeed. Well, it's a true honour.
1: Um, Stephen, you had a very solid performance. You've sold Sunak, Steve Barclay and the SMP, but I'm afraid you are still holding Suella Braverman. Don't know if you stand by that. Uh, Miranda, Uh, is still holding Sue Gray, Pat McFadden and Kemi Badenoch as we head into January. And Robert is holding Nick Timothy and Julian Smith. Although I think he probably does get uh, some kudos for having sold Nadine Dorries early. So going into the new year, George, who are you buying or selling?
2: Well, let's buy at the FT's favourite politician, Nigel Farage. I think he's had a pretty decent year with all the debanking stuff. Did okay in the jungle, didn't he? And I think he won't be able to resist tweaking the Tories' tale of terror <laughs> in an election year, either via the Reform Party or by hinting he might one day rejoin the Tory party and take it over. So I, I'll buy Farage.
1: I think I'm already holding Farage. I think I tipped him just before he was announced as going into ah, the jungle. Brilliant. So I'll uh, I'll remind you all of that and slightly leave some of my uh, less illustrious tips. Stephen, how about you heading into the new year?
3: Given the appraisal of my poor career this year, I'd better just tell Suella Braverman. Um I think for a couple of, of reasons. One, I think, uh, although I don't think it's going to be enough to turn around the Conservatives' underlying, you know, based on global problems and the List Trust hangover and the party gate hangover and all of the, you know, various sort of political problems they have, I think that the thing that Suela Bravan had briefly managed to do was successfully be out of the tent, but not so out of the tent that she looked, you know, and she looked like she just was not ready for prime time. Her, her Victory Speaks at the Spectator Parliamentarian of the Year awards, which are very influential um, in the inner mood of the Conservative Party in particular. Um, I think all of that has sort of dimmed her hopes of being the standard bearer of the right at the next leadership election. I'm getting, I'm
2: selling all of my problems. (laughs)
1: Having decimated uh, her quite extensively there.
2: Lucy, yeah. Who would you be buying and selling in 2024?
1: Well, uh, George, this may be music to your ears. As someone who's um, always paid the Lib Dems due attention, Mm. I am buying uh, Sered Davy because I think, you know, the Lib Dems could be players in any kind of coalition talks with Labour. He's, of course, the Lib Dem uh, leader. And so I think, uh, yeah, I think he might be having a good year ahead. George Stephen, thanks for joining and a very Merry Christmas to you Uh, both. Thank you, Lucy, and Happy Christmas to you. Thanks, Lucy, and Happy New Year. Well, before we end, a quick word about the FT's annual charity auction. You can bid to have lunch with some of our top columnists and editors, including Political Fix regulars Miranda, Stephen Bush and George Parker. They're worth every penny. And the restaurants involved are donating meals for an excellent cause. All proceeds go to the FT's financial literacy and inclusion campaign, Flick. Go to ft.com forward slash appeal to see what's on offer. I've put a link in the show notes, along with articles linked to today's show, which are free to read for listeners. There's also a link to Stephen's award-winning Inside Politics newsletter. You'll get 30 days free. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. Do leave a review or star rating. It really does help spread the word. Political Fix was presented by me, Lucy Fisher, and produced by Audrey Tinlin and Misha Frankel-Duval. Manuela Saragossa is the executive producer. Original music and sound engineering by Breen Turner. Rod Fitzgerald was the broadcast engineer. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. We'll meet again in the new year.